One of the greatest gifts that Rebecca and I received as young ministers was the gift of good mentoring. I'm sure that's the case for a lot of people, but it was very much the case for us, and I don't simply mean that there were people with more experience who were invested in us and helping us figuring out the blocking and tackling of ministry. I mean that they were invested in us and helping us figure out the the blocking and tackling of life. How to be spouses. How to manage time. How to parent children. One of our mentors, I recall, told us that from the very beginning, she and her husband, both of whom were in ministry, established a hard rule in their family that Sunday mornings were for church. Sensible thing for a minister's family to do, but also something that has become increasingly countercultural in 21st century America. Still, she said, you set the pattern early and your children won't deviate from it as they age. They will simply recognize it as one more aspect of growing up in the faith. She even told us a story that helped illustrate this lesson. It was a beautiful, warm Sunday morning, she said, and like they did every Sunday, their family was headed to church. Let's go, let's get ready, she'd encouraged her kids that morning. After all, Sundays are for church. After they got in the car and they were driving through the neighborhood, they passed other neighbors of theirs in their own Sunday best, getting into their cars on their way to church. Oh, look, there go the Joneses, she recalls. And the Smiths, they're headed to church as well. Looks like that's where everyone's headed today. But then as they rounded the next turn on their route, they came across a group of kids riding their bicycles on that beautiful, warm Sunday morning when suddenly out of the back seat, one of our mentors told us she heard the voice of her smart aleck teenage son asking her, gosh, I don't know, Mom, where do you reckon they're headed, huh? And in that moment, out of the deep wisdom and patience that had been earned through years of ministry and parenthood, she promptly replied, Straight to hell, that's where they're going. <laughs> thus in parenting, and thus it is at times in ministry as well. You devote energy and attention. You try to help folks grow in the faith. And just when you think everything is flying high, that is when you get brought back down to earth. This morning, as we look over the shoulder of the Apostle Paul and reread this letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth, this is where we find him. It can be easy to forget sometimes that once you get past the Gospels and past the book of Acts, the rest of the New Testament is made up of letters. 
Letters written from specific people to specific people about specific things. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is no different. Several years prior to this, Paul had made his way to Corinth and lived there for about a year and a half, preaching the good news to everyone he came in contact with, Jew and Gentile alike. Then, after getting the church there established, he moved on up the line, because this is what Paul did. He went from city to city, preaching the good news, getting a church planted, and then riding off into the sunset, trusting that the good work he had put in there would carry the brothers and sisters forward from victory onto victory. And yet, several years after Paul left Corinth, he found himself needing to write a stern letter to the church there, hoping to keep them on the straight and narrow. Unfortunately, not long after that, Paul got even more reports that things weren't going so well back in Corinth. And so that is when he decided that he needed to write a second letter, the one that we are looking at today. We know it as 1 Corinthians, but it is the second letter that Paul had to write to the Corinthians. If you've ever studied 1 Corinthians, then you know that the congregation there in Corinth was dealing with something like five or six of the seven deadly sins all at the same time. Folks were dividing up into rival factions. They were suing one another in the law courts. There were reports of drunkenness, incest, disputes about marriage, about authority, disputes about worship, and on and on and on. And at different points in the letter, Paul addresses each one of these at length, and then he addresses even more issues that they were facing. At one point, he even says in chapter 4, look, y'all can either pull together and work on figuring these things out, or one day I'm going to show up on the doorstep with a stick in my hand, and I'm going to beat you into submission. And yet, if you didn't know all of that, you might not have been able to guess it from the passage that we have just heard. Because here, at the very beginning of the letter, it is almost like Paul is writing to a completely different group of people. If we hadn't continued reading through verses 10 and 11, where he begins talking about the arguments and the divisions and all the rest of it, then we might not have realized that the people he is writing this letter to are facing as many problems as they are. Listen again to how he addresses them. To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, I give thanks to my God always for you. Because of the grace that has been given to you, for you have been enriched in every way and you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. 
It's high praise. In fact, it's some of the highest praise that appears anywhere in Scripture. And considering what all follows it, all the stuff about the factions and the arguments and all of the rest of it, it may very well seem suspect. I mean, far be it from me or anybody to accuse St. Paul of not always telling the truth, but he wouldn't be the first person in the history of the world who's been accused of trying to butter up his audience before giving them a bit of news that they don't want to hear. And yet, what Paul is doing here in these verses, talking about their calling and their sanctification and the riches and the graces and the spiritual gifts that have been poured out upon them, it isn't simply flattery, and it's not a head fake, and it's not some rhetorical strategy to try and win a hearing from his audience. Instead, what Paul is doing is reminding the Corinthians that they are church. Well, of course they're church, I can hear some of you out there thinking. Of course, that's not, that's not interesting. That's not insightful. Do you know what time the Jags game got over last night? Do you know what time I finally went to bed? I didn't get up and get dressed and get here this morning for you to tell me something as banal as church. To which I might reply, fair enough. And yet, is it actually true that church is really all that banal? After all, it's not for nothing that in the Apostles' Creed, which is our oldest statement of faith that we have, the church is listed there as one of the things that we are called to believe in as an act of faith. The virgin birth, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, the church. Acts of God that can't simply be proven, things that the world around us will scoff at, things that must simply be believed in according to the creed. And why not? Who in our world today would look at the stories coming out about churches and not scoff at the idea that God is actually anywhere within a mile of it. The sex scandals, the money scandals, the arguments and divisions and lawsuits and all the rest. The sin. 2,000 years later and all evidence seems to point to the fact that we're simply trying to do our best imitations of First Church Corinth. And yet, we, like they, are church. We, like they, are the body of Christ. We, too, have been enriched and graced and sanctified and called, equipped with every spiritual gift. 
we, like they, have the presence of the risen Lord, who, by the way, gets named nine times in the first ten verses of this text, prowling around us even as we speak, his spirit flowing through our lives and our community and our actions in ways that we can't anticipate or control. And if or when those lives or this church might seem a bit chaotic, well, it turns out that chaos is a creative environment in which God's Spirit excels. Just like last Sunday, this morning we are still in the church's season of Epiphany. And just like last Sunday, a quick reminder that Epiphany does not have some fancy stained glass definition, but it simply names the time when we remember again what it is to meet our Lord for the first time. To be surprised by who he is and what he is and how he chooses to act. To be surprised at how strange it all seems. And today, the surprising thing before us is that our Lord has chosen us. Just like he chose Paul. Just like he chose those troublemakers in Corinth. Just like he has chosen every other messy and fallen and broken and complicated church down through the ages and all around the world to call and sanctify and equip and partner with. Why? I haven't the foggiest idea. And yet, here we are, once again, on a Sunday morning, while our neighbors out in the world are either laying in or running errands or amusing themselves to death. So no, I am not at all 100% sure why we are the ones that God has chosen to work with and through and sometimes even in spite of in this, his world. But if I had to guess, I'll bet it has something to do with that world's redemption. Thanks be to God.